appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you for visiting with us. We had the occasion of our grandson's birthday last week. So, Ethan, happy birthday to you. Both sets of grandparents wish you God's blessing for your birthday. Celebrate the whole week. <laughs> Two other things that we celebrate. We've mentioned our anniversary, 29 years. God has blessed us. I was just thinking through the faithful people that God has given to this ministry, especially those who are now with the Lord. Um, several of them were at our first service and have been faithful from that point on until their death. I want to think of my dad, who was part of our first service. Um, Mac Holt, my father-in-law, was a part of our first service. And Shirley was part of our first service. And they were faithful until God took them home. We praise God for that kind of faithfulness. Praise God for the, just the opportunity to minister. And uh, God has blessed us to, to be able to minister these years. And he's given us the faithfulness of his people. And he has sustained us through these many years. And so we just say praise God for the 29 years of ministry that he's given to us. <clears throat> this date we celebrated on the third Sunday in March. And in 1994, that third Sunday happened to be March 20th. And March 20th is happy birthday to probably our oldest member, 91 years old. My mom will be 91 tomorrow. Tomorrow is her birthday. So, mom, we celebrate. We celebrate your birthday ahead of time. Happy birthday. <laughs> I think it's appropriate that spring starts on March 20th, and my mom just reminds me of spring. Just, just a refreshing, uh, she brings a refreshing sense and air to whenever you talk with her and whenever you meet her. She is the opposite of complaining. She is very gracious and thankful to God for everything that God has, has given given her, and uh, just a constant reminder when you talk with her of how we are to be thankful to God. So, Mom, I'm thankful for you, thankful for your thankfulness. Amen. All right. Our scripture this morning, we're continuing our, our, our series in Exodus, and we come now upon Exodus 34. So would you turn there in your Bibles? We'll be preaching from this chapter today, Exodus 34. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand, but before, if you don't have a Bible of your own, ushers have Bibles available, so raise your hand right now, they'll bring a Bible to you. Now, let's all stand together in respect to the reading of God's Word, Exodus 34. So I'm going to read aloud and ask you to follow along with me as I read Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up 
on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as has such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care that you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, You eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month month Abib, For in the month of Bib, you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time, in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. 
the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. May God give us understanding in this passage of Scripture that we read and preach through this morning. If you would remain standing with me, let's bow for a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time together today. We thank you for the years of ministry that you've given to this church. We thank you for the faithful individuals that you have added to this church, even for those who have left this church. We thank you for your governing over this church. And we pray that you continue to work in us and through us so that we might have a testimony among this community that we worship in and that we live in. We pray for our faithfulness, Lord, that we will sustain under your power a measure of faithfulness to serve you, and that you use that for your glory. We would pray, Lord, that souls would hear the gospel and be saved, that they will be built up and and mature, brought to maturity in the ministry here at this church for your glory, for your good, for the good of the gospel going out. And Lord, we pray uh, um, your, your blessing, your healing on some who are sick or not with us today. We think of Bonnie who's recovering. We think of her husband Bill who's here today that you would just continue to sustain him. Watch over her, watch over them both. Bring about a healing in her, Lord, so that she could soon return to being in our presence once again. We thank you and pray for Joyce and her health, Lord, that you just continue to uphold her and keep her, watch over her. We think of Willie and his back and that you would continue to watch over and bless and bring healing there. Lord, there's many others who have had ups and downs and, and uh, health issues and uh, tests and procedures. We just pray that you will watch over and bless and heal yes. and that you would allow your people to see your goodness and give you praise and glory for it. Bless now the preaching of your word today. Open our eyes and understanding and challenge our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Please be seated. We got up to Exodus 31. Actually, from chapter 24 through 31, we see God giving specific instruction for worship. And he's called Moses up to the mountain, and he's given those instructions, and he sends Moses back down with uh, these two tablets, handwritten, the finger of God is written on these tablets, the Ten Commandments. But before Moses leaves the mountain, God announces to Moses that the people have sinned. They have set up a, a, a false a idol, a god, a golden calf, and they've begun to worship this. So as Moses comes down from the mountain, he hears the people worshiping this golden calf and and he, he throws down the tablets and he breaks them. He crushes them into a fine powder, puts it in water, and forces the people to drink that. Uh, God comes down and, and punishes the people. Um, and you can see those events in chapter 32. In chapter 33, God speaks to Moses and he tells Moses, you know, I'm going to complete my promise, but I'm not going to go with you as you go to this promised land that I'm sending you to. And you can imagine the devastation from Moses and from the people that they cannot commune with God because of their wickedness, because of their sinfulness. Now we see in chapter 34 that we look at today that God gives instruction to Moses and he renews this covenant that the people have broken. Remember, before Moses could even get down from the mountain, they had broken that covenant, the Ten Commandments that God had given them to live by. And God comes back in his graciousness and he renews this covenant so that he might have relationship with his people. His people are sinful, but God renews a covenant based on his righteousness and what he is going to do with his people. He instructs Moses to come back up in the mountain to get ready with him again and to prepare two tablets of stone so that he can write again the Ten Commandments on those stones. And so that's what we see in the first nine verses. Moses makes a new tablet. God instructs him in verses 1 through 3. And a very important part of this in verse 4, something very simple but very important. God gives Moses a specific instruction, and what does Moses do? He follows God's instruction. He does what God says and he does it right away. Notice verse 4. We're in chapter 34, verse 4. It says there, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. That seems like a simple, straightforward verse, but it, it shows Moses' obedience. I want you to think about it. God required Moses to do things a certain way. First of all, he had to meet with God 
on a mountain. I don't know about you, but I'd rather not take the steps if the elevator is working. You ever gone mountain climbing? I haven't, but I'm camping up some hills. It's not an easy thing to do. But God calls Moses to meet with him in the mountain and to prepare two tablets of stone before meeting with him. Now, me and you might wonder, well, Lord, why, why can't I get the tablets in the mountain once I get up there? Why I got to carry these two tablets all the way up the mountain? The point here is that Moses simply obeys. He doesn't demand from God. He does what God tells him to do. And he does the right attitude. We see that from that verse. He says, early in the morning, he rose, got up, and went and did what God had told him to do. In verses 5 through 7, we see that Moses again communes with God. God meets with him. And it says that God declares himself to Moses. Let's take a look at this section because I think it is very important. It says in verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. It's worded kind of goofy, I think, as we think about it. God proclaims the name of God. The Lord proclaims the name of the Lord. In other words, God is coming to commune with Moses, and he proclaims who he is to Moses. Now, we glean a lot from that, and I want us to look at it. This is what God says about himself. It's in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I'm going to pause there because I think there's two important parts of this proclamation that God gives. I've said this, if we're going to understand who God is, we got to get it from the source. We have to, we have, to have God reveal himself to us. And God is doing this explicitly. He's proclaiming himself to Moses so that Moses might know who he is. And this is how he proclaims himself in two ways. The first part is this God, the Lord, who is gracious. He's merciful. He is slow to anger. It amazes me that at this point in, in, in this story, God is showing himself to be gracious, to be merciful, and slow to anger. The people have sinned before God's commandments could even be brought down to the mountain to them. Now, they already knew what God's commandments was. If I remind you, God spoke it first reviewed it with Moses, and then called Moses up to the mountain to write, get it in writing. Before they went up to the mountain in writing, they had, they had agreement. They made a covenant together, and Moses says, this is what God says. And they said, we have heard what God says. We will do all that God said. That's what they did. And so Moses went up in the mountain. 
began, God went through with 40 days with Moses and wrote those on tablets the first time. While they were up in the mountain in those 40 days, the people sinned against God. God comes down. Now Moses comes down and, and, and begins, God begins to deal with the people. But this is why God proclaims himself to Moses. Think about it. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's, that's the first thing that God says. He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger. This is the whole basis for which Moses can even approach God, talk with him, meet with him, and commune with him because God is merciful and gracious. So there's two things that we need to understand about God in his proclamation. The first is that he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's one who will forgive sin. We need to let that register in our hearts and minds. If God was not that, there's no way we could have anything to do with him. We could not approach him. We could not have fellowship with him because we would be totally destroyed. But there's a second part about God that is equally important and needs to be considered and understood. And he says both of these together. So he says, the Lord, the Lord, Gracious, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding. I like that word, abounding in steadfast love. I mean, he doesn't have just a little bit of steadfast love. It is flowing from him. He never ends in steadfast love. He's a stream, a spring of steadfast love that never runs dry. That's what he's saying, abounding in it. So there's enough for your sin and then enough after that for mine too. He's abounding in love. He never runs out. He says steadfast love. I like that. That's the opposite of fickle. <laughs> See, fickle love is I love you when you're good to me. And then not so much when you ain't so much. But God ain't like that. Because he knows no one can meet up to his standard, and he's dealing with a stiff-necked people, a stubborn people. So we need that kind of steadfast love. It's not schizophrenic, high and low. You don't know what you're going to get one day to the other. No, God is steadfast in his love. Look how he describes it before we get to the second part of this. He says in verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands. I think you can better understand that when you get to the second part because he talks about he's going to hold people accountable to uh, the, the children for the father's sin and the children for, for, uh, for their fathers and the fathers. In other words, for, for the, the fathers will pass down to the children and their grandchildren to third and fourth generation. God is going to judge them for sin. What he's saying, the consequences of sin run deep. They run deep. 
and they impact generation after generation after generation. He says to the third and fourth generation. But if you think that's extreme, you need to understand that the first part of that, when he talks about that his love is steadfast, and it says keeping steadfast love for thousands, there's some understanding in the writing that the word generation is implied there. So it's not just thousands of people, but thousands of generations. In other words, if his judgment goes down to three and four generations, his grace and his mercy last for thousands of generations. How great is God in his mercy towards us? It's amazing. It's amazing. Now let's get to that second part. Because we can't really appreciate the first part if we don't also appreciate the second part. And it says this, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, but, here we get to the second part, who will by no means clear the guilty. God says, you need to understand something about me, Moses, and everybody who approaches me, you need to understand this. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I have a steadfast love that forgives sin. But I will by no means, he makes that clear, doesn't he? I will by no means clear the guilty. God will then punish sin. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying the same thing I'm thinking is, how is that both true? How can he do both? How can he be both? He's saying, clearly, I am both. I am one who, for the sake of wicked and sinful man, you should praise God that I am merciful and gracious and forgiven of sin. But you need to recognize that all will stand before me and none who are guilty will go unpunished. It does, doesn't it? It leaves us speechless. There's no one in this room who does not deserve and fall under the judgment of God. There's no one in this room who's excluded from that phrase. In fact, expand the room. Right? It's not just this room. It's any and every room. It's, in fact, all of mankind that falls under the judgment of God. God is righteous, and he will, he said, by no means will I clear the guilty. Now, if we took a show of hands throughout all history, from Adam until the end, and took a show of hands of how many can say that they are not guilty, are clear of sin, there could be no one raised their hand. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, which is a quote from the Old Testament, all have sinned. There is none righteous, it reiterates, no, not one. 
all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God wants us to understand these two seemingly contradictory statements about God. He is merciful in an infinite way, and yet he will rightly judge sin. You see, his righteousness demands that. It demands that. God says that he is not a respecter of persons. His righteousness demands that he treat sin properly, and it must be judged. Now, I'm going to leave us in that dilemma for just a moment, and that's that dilemma that we run in, is if God is going to be gracious and mercy, merciful, and yet he is going to punish all sin, where's his grace, where's his mercy, or how does he punish all sin? Well, let's take a look. Verse 9, look at the response of Moses. Moses humbles himself. Moses humbles himself. That's the proper response to God, to us understanding who God is. The proper response is to humble ourselves. It says in verse 9, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth. Bowing our head towards the earth is, is, is a picture of humility. The quickness of it shows how drastic this revelation was on him that he should have this kind of response. It's like when he heard this right away, this response that he had was to humble himself before God. He quickly did that. He didn't have to be talked and negotiated into this kind of response. It was, it was a dramatic, immediate response. Like, whoa. That led to him, first of all, humbling himself and then worship. Worship includes humility. Without humility, we cannot worship. Remember the, the last chapter, we, we were left with this dilemma. How can a human being come and meet and commune with God? The Bible tells us in John, no man can see God and live. So when Moses comes to hear this declaration, God declaring who he is, he humbles himself, and then he worships. Humility is just that. It's the response of acknowledging who God is. Let me say it this way. Everywhere in the Bible, when human beings come in contact with an angel, you know what happens? <laughs> they shut down because they recognize there's an awesome being in front of them that is not their equal. 
And it's like a whoa moment. You know, we, we picture that. It's, it's, like, it's like a man with a knife meeting a man with a gun. He's like, man, I thought this knife was something, but hey, <laughs> I'll gladly put this knife down. That's what he does. He humbles himself. He knows he's outpowered. There's no way you go into that thinking, I maybe can make this. I could take dude. No. He humbles himself. So when, when human beings come into the presence of an angel, they do that. Every time you see that in the Bible, you see the first thing the angel says is don't fear. If he's from God, he said, don't fear. In other words, chill, man. I ain't going to hurt you. Because there's an automatic fear there. Now, imagine when an angel comes before God. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6. The angels surround God, and all they can say is glory, 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 or holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. All they can do is worship. In other words, they automatically submit and recognize a higher power, not just a higher power, the highest power. Angels do that. Demons, when they came into the presence, when Jesus came into their presence, all they could do is say, whoa, 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 you didn't come to destroy us, did you? Because they knew that time is coming, it just hasn't come yet. When we come into the presence of God, like Moses, quickly we are to humble ourselves and then worship. Humility is gaining a proper perspective of who God is and who I am. That's what humility is. Humility is gaining a proper perspective of who God is and who I am. Moses here recognizes God is a merciful, gracious, steadfast, loving God who forgives sin, and yet he's going to deal with every sin and not clear anybody who's guilty. And Moses says, whoa. God is going to do what he is going to do, and I stand condemned. And there's nothing I can do to clear myself. I stand condemned. Humility is a proper, is gaining a proper perspective of who God is and who I am. That's why we say when a person is full of themselves, they're not humble. They've lost perspective of who God is. And who they are. When I was a kid, we used to say, if I'm lying, God strike me down. And then when we didn't kill over and fall the next moment, we would get boastful. See? God didn't strike me down. I ain't lying. They had a very jilted perspective of who God was. In other words, God couldn't see them, didn't know their true nature. Or God could see but couldn't do. 
They were somehow out of God's reach. They had a wrong perspective of who God is and who they were. Moses has come to a right perspective of who God is and who he is. And what does he do? He worships. He worships. He worships. As he worships now, he is now able to make a request to God. And here's his request. Verse 9, he says, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. He says, For somehow, God, you're gracious, and I don't deserve your grace. You're going to, you're going to condemn and deal with every guilty sinner. And yet I'm still standing here. If I have found favor in your sight, he says two things. Go with me. Go with us and forgive our sin. Oh, Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. He acknowledges God's sovereignty. God is the one in control, in charge, doing as he pleases to please himself. He acknowledges God's righteousness. That God is the Holy One who will condemn sin. He acknowledged God's grace that allows him to even stand and make a request before God. The basis of his whole request is just that, God's grace. God's grace. The Old Testament forces us to ask this question, what's the basis of God's grace? It forces us to ask that. Why will God forgive sin? On what basis does that? How can he be righteous and still forgive sin? And it points to one person. In fact, Moses points to that. The law points to that. The whole Old, Old Testament points to that. And God doesn't leave us uh, in a state of confusion concerning that. The person that the Old Testament is pointing to is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that satisfies the righteous demand of God that sin be paid for because he took on himself all of sin for those who have sinned and would trust in him. He took on your sin and my sin if we, in fact, believe in Jesus. Our sin is placed on Christ and paid for completely by Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that God can, 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 can uh, execute or, 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 or carry out both his judgment and his grace. His judgment towards us or towards our sin by placing him on Christ and condemning his own son by death on the cross. 
and his grace extended to us because now that sin is paid for if, in fact, we look to our Savior. Israel is in need of a Savior, and Moses is inadequate. And God is saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And he's in essence saying, this covenant that I'm making points to not just your need for a Savior, because you've already showed me you can't keep it. You can't keep these laws that I'm giving you. You broke them before, <laughs> before it even the ink was dry. You broke the commandments. But I'm providing for you a Savior who will take your punishment. And that person is Jesus Christ. In the next few verses, God renews that covenant with the people through Moses. Look what he says. Verse 10, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people I would do marvels. He says what I would do several times. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. In verse 10 and 11, I'll do marvels, an awesome thing that I will do with you. He says I'm going to do it in such a way that everybody who looks on is going to marvel at it. Look at verse 10. He says, And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. In other words, God is going to do something with Israel so that other people can see and marvel at God. So this is, isn't just about Israel. This is about the other people too. In other words, it's about the world God using Israel as an example and as a model and as a testimony so that the world can see that God is both gracious and merciful and one who will not clear the guilty. He's doing this so that the world can see and marvel, that the world can see Israel's Savior and then take him as their Savior as well. That's why we're here today. I don't have lineage to Israel. Not through natural means. But God has made it possible for you and for me to have that Savior that he brought through Israel so that we might be saved. He's done that. He's, he's done a thing in Israel so that we could look on it and marvel and say, wow, God, you did that not just for them. You did that for us. The Bible makes it clear, all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Whether Jew or Gentile, no matter where you came from, what lineage you have, when you trust in Christ, you have a Savior. And God forgives you sin and gives you eternal life. So we look at what God did with Israel and we marvel. By the way, if, if you look at what God did to Israel, it's amazing. These people that Moses is talking to are condemned people. God tells us in Hebrew, none of them found God's rest. They didn't make it to the promised land, and they didn't have faith in God. They're eternally condemned by God. God did this, it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he did it for us. He did this as a testimony to us so that we could see what God is doing and we could come and believe and trust in God. These people were unbelievers. 
They were ungrateful. They were unfaithful. They were not trusting. They did not walk in God's ways. God says, when I make this new covenant, I'm going to change the hearts of my people. I'm going to come in to live with my people. I'm going to save them, give them my Holy Spirit, and they'll be able to live out in obedience to me. And that's what he's doing with us today. Let me continue on in this chapter. Because what we see in verses 11 on, well, actually we see 11, God tells what he's going to do with the people. He's going to remove the inhabitants of the land. He's going to bring them into that land. Actually, he's going to bring their children into that new generation into that land, and God does that. And he reminds them of the covenant that he's made and what they are to keep. And that goes all the way through verse 28. My eyes aren't working very well, so I can't see my numbers good. But it is verse 28. Then verse 29 starts with what we see, the shining face of Moses. And I think, you know, we can do a lot of marvel about this and, and, and a lot of perspective about it. But I think that the issue is really clear. And it's just this. Let me just spell it out. When you spend time with God, is an impact on you. It changes you. It changes even how people, what people see in you. Because Moses spent time with God, the people looked at Moses and says his face was shining. That really shouldn't be very surprising. What's amazing to me is that they were afraid of him. They are afraid of him. It's like when you spend time with God, people don't know how to react to you. They don't know how to respond to you. But the deal is, is that when you spend time with God, you begin to change. You take on God's glory cannot leave us unaffected. People today want to say, yeah, I'm a believer, but then every wicked word, every vile word comes out of their mouth. Every attitude that they have is... That, that, that's not the way God looks. And when God impacts you, he's going to change who you are. Now, I know that's an ongoing change. And we're not perfect, but the fact is, and, and that's shown by this, this didn't stay on Moses. It will wear down after a while, and then you go in and be with God, and his face will shine again. But the point is, is when we spend time with God, when we commune with God, it changes our character. And other people see a change in us that is obvious. We were at the Milwaukee Rescue Mission chapel service yesterday and Brian was preaching and and um, after after the preaching of God's word we have a time to interact with some of the men and the man came to me for prayer afterwards and he said you know I asked him what do you think of the message and he, he said I understood it and and it was very powerful and he said this I saw an angel above his head I listened to him I said you know <laughs> I can't dispute that <laughs> <laughs> what he saw, I don't know what he saw. But here's what I know is when, when God is, is working in an individual, God is impacting that individual to change, and that change can be seen or felt in some kind of way by all those around. 
And I think that's what's happening with Moses. As he spent time with God, his physical body was impacted and changed by that. You notice in the 40 days and the 40 nights he spent time with God, it says he didn't eat or drink anything. Now, physically, that's impossible. You can't live like that. You can go a number of days without food, but you can't go more than a few days without any water. But obviously, God sustained him. Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness, and the devil tempted him. He says, I want you to eat this bread or turn this, these, these stones into bread. And Jesus says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He was saying, look, we need to take in what God is saying, and we are spiritually fed by that. But should we be surprised if, in fact, Moses was also physically fed? In other words, God sustained him simply by his being with God. God is able to do that. The point is, I don't think we should be seeking and, and coveting some glow on our face or that people see angels when they look at us. That's not the goal. The point is, is that's impossible. it's impossible to hide the impact of God in your life. And so if other people ain't seeing nothing... I'd be worried about that. I ain't worried about them seeing angels when Brian is speaking. I'm like, praise God. But if they ain't seeing nothing, then maybe ain't nothing there. And maybe your faith that you say so much with your mouth that you have is not a true and a real faith. Moses is just saying, he didn't even know it either. He didn't even realize. He's just going about his business. He, he, he wasn't aware of the fact that his face was reflecting the glory of God. He, he, he didn't know that. After he knew it, he kind of like, oh, man, <laughs> I better put a veil because folks looking at me crazy. I better put a veil so they ain't scared of me. Then when I go back to God, I can be myself again. Total opposite of how phony believers do, isn't it? When God touches your life, other people will see it. In fact, they won't be able to ignore it, especially in this wicked, sinful world we live in. Mm -mm. You can't live and be a Christian and hide. You can't. You're going to stand out. Praise God you're going to stand out because God wants to use that as a witness to others. He wants to use you. He wants to speak to others through you. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that you work in the hearts and the lives of your people. We thank you, Lord, that you are both merciful, gracious, steadfast, faithful, loving, and forgiving, and at the same time, one who by no means will clear the guilty. And so we stand before you as guilty, and we rush to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone here acknowledging themselves in humility, an act of humility and worship, to recognize that they need your grace. They deserve your judgment, but they need your grace. They are falling down before you and crying out to Jesus because that's who you offer. You offer none else 
There's no need of anyone else, but all who trust in Jesus receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life. You said you, you so loved the world that you gave your only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So we thank you for your promise of Jesus. Then, Lord, I pray that all who trust in him might have that life-impacting experience of being with you and having their face changed having you impact their very character even down to the way that they look. Meet with us, commune with us, change our, change us so that we can have an impact on others. I pray that you do that with those who come to you right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to pray with us today as we dismiss, as the musician plays over that song gently. If you would come to the front, we'd love to pray with you. Be some men here to pray with those who come, men of our leadership team, godly men. If you would like to pray with somebody today, would you come forward so that we can pray with you? Be ladies available to pray with those who come. And if you would just allow those who want to come to come, just take a seat right there in the front and we'd like to pray with you. And as you commune, we have, we'll be dismissed. You can quietly commune among yourself, but if you like prayer, would you come to the front?